Ricky. British soldiers being killed in Woolwich in what's being called the first terrorist attack on the British mainland since 7-7. Today, our thoughts are with the victim and with his family. They are grieving for their loved one, and we have lost a brave soldier. So is this terrorism or the work of lone actors on British soil? Security has been increased at London's main barracks and military personnel are being warned to be on their guard after a British soldier was killed in an apparent terrorist attack in Woolwich yesterday. Chief of the Defence Staff General Sir David Richards has condemned it as a foul act and expressed his deepest sympathies to the family and loved ones of the victim. The Prime Minister's chaired a meeting of the government's emergency COBRA committee and spoke to BFBS reporter Claire Sadler this afternoon. Well, my message is that they have all our support, the good wishes of the whole country. They're a vital part of our country and rightly revered for the work they do at home and abroad. All our thoughts and prayers are with the family of the individual who was so brutally murdered on the streets of London. They have our thoughts, our prayers, our good wishes as they mourn uh, the loss of their loved one and the nation has lost a very brave soldier. Personnel have been told they can wear their uniforms outside barracks. How important is it for them to be seen in uniform and how do they go about protecting themselves? One of the ways we will defeat terror and violent extremism and all forms of terrorism is going about our ordinary everyday lives and not changing the things that we do. The British public love our armed forces. They love them being in the public eye, they want to see them in their uniforms going about their everyday lives, whether they're taking their children to school or doing the weekly shop in the supermarket. And our armed forces feel like that too. Obviously it was right when this dreadful event took place for some guidance to be issued, not knowing exactly what had happened. But I think now it's right to say we're proud of our armed forces. Uh, They're proud to wear their uniforms. We're proud to see them in public in their uniforms. And the more that we show that everyday life will continue, the more that we'll win. Well, I'm joined by Admiral Lord West, who's a former Minister for Security and Counterterrorism, and Professor Michael Clark, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. Lord West, um, is this terrorism? Um, yeah, I mean, it quite clearly is terrorism. I mean, what's not clear yet is, you know, is it part of some bigger sort of scheme of things, or is it just these two and a very small group and that will come clear as more information comes out but quite clearly from all of the information we've had so far it is it it, it is a couple of people who've been inspired by al-qaeda type terrorism although not i i doubt very much directed by it i don't think they've been directed by them at all um so in a sense they're 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 running on their own but i think they've been inspired by al-qaeda terrorism and all the actions they've taken rather rather fit in with that how has it been able to happen well, I mean, I, it's very difficult if they're, if they're sort of self-starters in a small group. But, uh, I mean, what they're going to have to find out, and I don't know what the answer is yet, but no doubt the security service is looking to see if they've, you know, been on their radar at all. Have they had reports of them being at risk? Are they 
people who are being looked at. We're looking at over 2,000 people in this country, most of whom are, are uh, British nationals, you know, second or third generation. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of people are monitored. So they'll have to see, have these people been monitored? Why did they pop up on the radar? I mean, once heard unconfirmed reports that one of them tried to go to Somalia and go to Al-Shabaab. I don't know whether that's true or not. You know, until we know the ground truth, we won't know all these things. But to stop um, a, a pair, two people, or one person who have self-radicalized on the web or something like that, going out and doing something is extremely difficult. It's always the most difficult thing. Because normally we have groups that are doing things, and of course if there's a group, they get direction from someone, they're talking to each other, and that's how we're able to follow and plot these, and why we've been so successful in catching people and taking them to court before they've actually conducted their rather ghastly crimes. Christopher Lee, uh, what is this so-called lone actor, and is it the biggest terrorist headache for MI5? Last year, the then um, uh, Director General of MI5's Jonathan Evans coined this phrase, lone actors, and this was the problem, as he uh, identified it then. It's when you don't have guys, as the Admiral's just said, you know, when they don't have links to big organisations, it makes it far more difficult to see where they slot in. They don't necessarily come up with a, uh, any, any monitoring on them. Even if they do come up on the security services, special branch radar, they don't have the manpower simply to follow them. One of these characters has been doing uh, religious soapboxing in Beresford Square, in, which is the market area, the old market area of, uh, of Woolwich. And this has been noted, and he's been noted, and they've kept an eye on him. But you can't do everything. You can't you can do nothing more than report through. So he wasn't being closely monitored. I mean, frankly, if he had been closely monitored, um, then what happened yesterday would not have happened. Uh, it's very difficult to get the resources to do it. It may come into Trident, you know, which is the police, uh, the police operation, but Woolwich is not necessarily on the police radar, although there was an attempt earlier this year, wasn't there, of some, of some groups to actually try and make a hit on, on the barracks at Woolwich. So it's not something which we have to sort of ignore. I mean, since 2005, there's been a major attempt at a terrorist activity, a major attempt, big one, every single year since 2005. That's eight big ones which, you know, to give them credit, the security operation has managed to sort of foil... How big a target are the military in the UK? Lord West, I'll put that to you. Um, well, we know that um, we, we've, we've managed to stop two plots to behead a British serviceman in this country before now. One of them, I think, was in 2000 and, uh, 2007 and one in 2009. Um, and we know that they've said they would like to kill them. We know we've seen from some of the websites, you know, they've said about driving into people and killing people. Um, so we know there's a threat. And, of course... We're used to this. We had this threat when the IRA were at their peak, and, uh, you know, we had to be very careful then. We had to go and check under our cars, go different routes and all this sort of thing. So, so there's always a threat there. Um, I don't think if this, is, if this is a one-off small group, I don't think it's any greater than it has been, and I think they would have raised the threat level, the government, if, if they'd felt this was, a, uh, you know, a step change, something really changing. What actually happens at a COBRA meeting? What would have been talked about this morning? Well, the, the, there was one yesterday and one today, and, they, and you have COBRA meetings for all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. Like they had one for the swine flu epidemic, they had one for the ash cloud, you know. But they also have it obviously for security things. If there's a kidnapping abroad, and for an incident like this, a a, a, a terrorist incident, and and basically the, the 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 prime minister or the home secretary will chair it. Today it was the prime minister. They will have their all the heads of the agencies. 
um, the uh, SO15. They would have the commissioner, you know, the commissioner of the Met. Um, they had the mayor, of course. They will have the departments that are fully involved. So the communities, uh, communities department would be would be there. The, the MOD would be rep- would be there, represented by the Secretary of State, no doubt. They all are there. All of the data is being fed into them. Everything they found out so far from 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 all of those people is is placed as a presentation, so everyone can see everything that's been done. People will chip in and add to that information, and then. Uh, one works out, right, what are the various things we need to do? Do we need to up the threat level? And JTAC make this decision, um, the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, which is within the security service. You know, Do we need to raise the threat level, yes or no? Are these people part of some huge group that's about to start doing this all over the country, yes or no? Um, what do we need to do in terms of, you know, do we need to actually um, go into certain areas and, 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 and protect certain people and things like yes or no? Do we need to pass, you know, some new regu- or get some new regulations for protection of our service personnel, etc.? All of these things are then talked through to make decisions about what action should then be taken and where we should go from now. Professor, and there's, there's also a PR bit as well of, you know, who's going to say what? Right, Prime Minister wants to say something. Let him say something first. Then we'll let Home Secretary. Then we'll let, you know, the, the Mayor for London. Well, the Mayor for London actually said a bit before the Prime Minister, <laughs> but that was breaking his brief, I think, and uh, and all of that sort of thing. Professor Michael Clark, um, what does it actually mean for our servicemen and women? We've seen a high profile in public in recent times. Should they stop wearing uniform in Absol- public? Absolutely not and they won't want to. Um, the, the, the service personnel are very robust and very philosophical about these sort of things. I mean, those of us who in the in the commentary business, we all get upset about it, but they actually are enormously phlegmatic about it. And they, they won't stop wearing the uniforms because it would look like a, like a victory for a, a single act of, of terrorism. Um, but undoubtedly, the military are very good at being able to put round a, a series of new guidelines and for the military themselves just discreetly to take more care. But Essentially, military personnel, not in their bases, they're very safe in all of their bases, all of their installations, but military personnel out and about, to a degree, have always been something of a target in the last 10 or 15 years, and that will continue to be the case. But they won't, ch- they won't overtly change their procedures, I can virtually promise you of that. Christopher Lee. Can we just, just a sort of final point on this idea of terrorism? Um, I think sometimes it's too easy to say, ah, oh, that's terrorism. If you go back, say, three years when Roshana Chowdhury uh, broke into the office of uh, Stephen, Stephen Timms, the MP, and he knifed him, what done as terrorism? It wasn't terrorism in the sense that what we sort of speak understand. Can we just once and for all say what the definition of terrorism really is? Well, one definition of terrorism, which is, is much sensible to follow, is that when an act is linked to either the ideology or directly to a larger terrorist organisation that has a system that we understand. What uh, Jonathan Evans was calling the lone actors, does that come under terrorism? It terrorises, yes, but is it terrorism in the way that we've begun to, A, understand it, B, we've uh, given the resources to hitting the main areas of what we understand to be terrorism? And I think sometimes, and especially when you need the general public to sort of help you out on this... Uh, first the Home Secretary, then the Prime Minister, who must have been told things, obviously, by the, by MI5, immediately said, you know, terrorism. I think sometimes you have to wait and see what the hard evidence is on the ground before you give such labels that will get such response. Lord, Lord West, was that? why do you think they used that word so quickly? 
yesterday? Well, I mean, I don't know what information they'd been fed and things. I mean, I think clearly they were infected by al-Qaeda, if not directed by them, on a small scale. On the uniform thing, all I would say there is that I understand the duty of care the MOD have, but during the IRA time, we were told not to wear uniform. And I must admit, if I wanted to wear uniform during that time, I used to wear it because I felt that if I was going to be killed by one of these that I'd rather be in my uniform than wearing a T-shirt. And, uh, and actually, it's very easy to spot. I can spot a squaddy or a sailor at 500 metres in plain clothes dead easily, and I'm sure a terrorist can. Professor Michael Clark, um, there have been some comparisons drawn with the Boston Marathon bombers. Do you see any similarities? Yes, there are. Uh, in the Boston bombers and these two suspects yesterday were what I would call uh, homicidal exhibitionists. They wanted to create a scene. I'm sure they didn't expect to survive the end of the day by hanging around at the scene, by doing what they did. They must have known that. Do you think they wanted to be up. martyrs? Do you think I'm that's sure why? they did? I'm sure they did. Yeah. And the fact is that I mean the police don't uh, don't have a procedure, as I understand it, to shoot to wound. The police shoot on the torso, so they're very lucky to be alive. And it, I'd be interested to find out where they where they were actually shot. Did the police miss? or were they just lucky that it went through their shoulder or something? I don't know. Uh, but they clearly expected to martyr themselves yesterday. And this, this desire to be uh, exhibitionists, to, to be posthumously famous, uh, is part of the psychology of the suicide bomber. Lord West, uh, what kind of uh, developments do you think will happen as a result of this in terms of security? What measures might the government take? Well, I think one's got to see all the evidence come in, of, of you know, all the details of exactly you know, what, what the background to everything is, because, uh, you know, there may be something that comes up that makes one say, oh, we do need to change something. I think it's unlikely there'll be any dramatic changes at all, I have to say. Um, I, I think we've had a very good track record, actually, in this country. It's always dangerous to say, because they only have to be lucky once, as we've said many times. Yeah, we have. I mean, I remember, Christopher, only a few weeks ago we were talking about this, a num number of plots that actually will have been foiled well, that we know, never we did, talk we about. We did seven during my time as security minister, seven big ones in that period. You know, we... You know, we, our, our agencies and the, and the, and the special branch are, are, are extremely good and we're very lucky to have them. Michael Clark, um, if you were giving advice to the government uh, following this incident, what would you be saying? The main advice is <clears throat> don't glamorise them. <clears throat> don't, if, if, when we talk about how evil this act is, how heinous it is, that actually creates a sort of black glamour around these characters, which they will take some... some on on, on in, that note, so actually, others. Michael, did you, were you surprised by the television footage that went out yesterday? Not specially, because you can't stop this footage circulating on the net anyway. Enough people were there to record it. Remember, all the, all the footage was recorded by individuals, not by camera crews as such. And so that's going to circulate anyway. And I think as a, as a society, we've got to confront that. But the weakness of these people... By doing what, do you mean? Well, we've, we've got to confront that by confronting the issues. What is it that these people want? That's what we should be talking about. Not what do they do. What, the, what they do, we know, is, is criminal and murderous. But what do they want? And that's what we should discuss, because what they want, is either incoherent or when it forms a coherence it, it becomes Islamo-fascism and I'm not using that as a term of abuse if you look at deep down what these characters believe in it is an Islamic version that's very close to 1930s fascism and I think that's what we should talk about Christopher I think there uh, what Mike is picking up is what I was trying to say earlier and that is the distinction when you have an ideology for example, within a, with a, within a large organisation which says, like, for example, Al-Qaeda, and also you have um, Jonathan Evans' lone actors, uh, what uh, Mike calls homicidal exhibitionists. They want different things, 
and then you have to get into their background. You have to understand why they're doing it, and, it's, uh, and you have to understand perhaps their social distinctions, uh, you know, their mental states, etc. These were not the actions of cold, calm uh, killers. These were not people who even went in with with all the paraphernalia of a well-organized and well-backed-up organization. You look at the weapons they were using, look at the state of those weapons. I mean, the, the, apparently, for example, the handgun backfired or whatever. That doesn't actually matter too much, but it gives you an idea. Let us distinguish, I come back to it, let us distinguish when we start talking about terrorism, about the characters who can be doing things for quite different reasons quite different reasons, but they use uh, phrases which they've heard, uh, they've seen on television, they've seen most clearly on websites. Now, in past few months, on Islamic uh, revolutionary websites, there have been a, no a number of decapitations have been filmed, and they've been posting them. And this is in the past few months. And this is inevitably starts to get some sort of radical ideas in the minds of people who Maybe a bit disturbed anyway. Lord West, is there anything more that can be done to stop the proliferation of this kind of material? Uh, well, I mean, we, we, we've, done, we've been doing an awful lot of work in this area to try and uh, get it amongst the, the, the web, the various sites that do radicalisation, also to put out a contrary message and things like that. We've also done a lot of work with uh, various uh, mosques and imams and, you know, getting imams to be English-speaking imams who put ones into prisons... So we've done an awful lot, but, but actually there's still a very long way to go, and I think we do need to put more focus, uh, more focus into this area. It's an extremely difficult area. We have had successes. The, the man who was going to attack a shopping centre in Bristol, we, we only got him because actually his imam and some of, the, some of the flock of that mosque actually reported him to us, and we were able to pick him up before he blew sort of a mass of people up in Bristol. So there has been some success, but... But it's a very difficult area and we need to, I think, put more focus into it. All right, Professor Michael Clark, Christopher Lee, stay with us. But for now, Admiral Lord West, thanks for joining us today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come in the week that the Ark Royal sailed for a Turkish scrapyard, we look at the future of the Royal Navy. BFBS Sit rep. The world's largest ever naval exercise to protect shipping from sea mines is currently taking place in the Arabian Gulf. 35 ships are involved, including six from Britain. The exercise is happening close to the Strait of Hormuz, a stretch of water which Iran has repeatedly threatened to block. BFPS reporter Rob Olver has been to see it all in action and joins us now in the studio. Hello, Rob. Um, this is a huge exercise, isn't it? Who's involved and what's the main aim? Well, as you say, it's being billed as the biggest exercise designed to deal with the threat of sea mines in busy shipping lanes. 60 countries now have sea mine stockpiles around the world. Uh, it's certainly a huge venture with 6,500 sailors from 41 countries and 35 ships in the Gulf, including six from Britain. The exercise commander is Royal Navy Commodore Simon Ancona and asked him why this big exercise in the Gulf and why now? Well, why here is it... Part of that is because it's been sponsored by NavSent. Um, it is a suitable central location. Many of the contributors to this exercise come from the east, uh, some from the west. Um, it is also an incredibly awkward place uh, to undertake the sort of missions that we're undertaking. If you can hunt mines in the Gulf, you can pretty much hunt mines anywhere. 
Why have they chosen to do it so close to Iran, Rob? Is it a show of strength? Well, some certainly would regard this as a, a show of strength. It involves some of the world's most sophisticated uh, mine-hunting vessels and robot subs. Would it deter a country like Iran that's uh, threatened to seed the Gulf with uh, mines? That's a question I also put to Commodore Ancona. Who could possibly tell? Actually, this exercise isn't focused at Iran. It's focused uh, at any one state, non-state, terrorist, any threat at all which um, has an impact on the freedom of navigation, specifically through the choke points uh, of the world. And we have three of the uh, six vital choke points in the world right here in Arjoa. So the Suez Canal, the Bab el-Mendeb and of course the Straits of Hormuz. So any threat to shipping through any of those three choke points would have a, an immediate and dramatic impact on UK, but also every other nation in the globe. That was Commodore Simon Ancona speaking to Rob Oliver. Rob, thank you for your time today. Professor Michael Clark, what will Iran be making of this exercise? I think the Iranians will see it um, as, as, as a show of strength. They'll see it in a, as a, a, an act of uh, pressure and coercion, which indeed, as Simon said, I think is, is partly intended to be. The, the Iranians, uh, I think, feel that the, the Gulf is a, a pressure point that they can use. And this exercise is designed to show that uh, you can't use this as a pressure point. Whatever you do, we can keep the Gulf open. And uh, the, the fact that we've got such good assets, mine countermeasure assets there, is an indication of the determination of the international community, led by the Europeans, but with lots of other countries involved, to say that this vital waterway will stay open whatever you do. That won't be a welcome message in Tehran, but they will look at it reasonably, I think pragmatically, for all of the rhetoric... Uh, and all of the incoherence of Iranian decision-making, uh, Iranians themselves, in, ma in positions of authority, do tend to take account of great power realities. Christopher, we understand that some nations taking part in this don't want to be identified. Who might they be and why not? Well, the, I'm, I'm not sure they don't want to be ident identified because they are there and they are identified. What they don't want to do is to make a big... Make, deal of it. To make a big, big deal of it. And when you consider, you know, as Rob was saying earlier, I think it's about 6,000 people involved. You can't hide this. But the important thing of all MCMV exercises, especially somewhere like the Gulf, Shatterer Waterway, etc., through there comes about uh, enough oil that if you stopped it... The the third, whole, is it the third of the world? Yeah, also yeah. and if you stopped it, the, the, the big organisations, big, big nations like the United Kingdom, which is, which is oil-reliant, etc., they start to close down after about, about a dozen days. If you go back to 1974 with the Yom Kippur War, everything relied on oil coming through. And, in, in fact, it's so much so that the United States put down its speed limits to 56 miles an hour to save, to, sa to save fuel. This is a big operation. Now, something like the United Kingdom, which has kept MCMVs in that area for uh, 30 years that I know about, and the important thing about it is the, the United Kingdom, as good as it is to, uh, uh, with MCMV, cannot do it by itself. You need all these nations. You need every one of these nations. And one of the reasons you need it, because all these different nations... All the nations, that six, those 6,000 soldiers that Rob was talking about, or sailors that Rob was talking about, they all need the oil that comes out there. So everybody has an interest in making sure that if it got difficult, and you only have to say you've mined an area, 
You don't actually have to do it, but somebody's got to check it out. Professor Michael Clark, um, elections coming up next month in Iran. What do you see happening there? There's a power struggle going on <clears throat> between uh, uh, the supreme leader, Khamenei, and uh, the supporters of uh, Am- uh, Ahmadinejad, who um, are being really closed down now. I mean, what people f- sometimes don't realise in-, in the West is how deeply riven the leadership is. Uh, in Iran, and Rafsanjani looks as if he's been, uh, as of two days ago, whatever it was, has been banned from standing. So what I think we're going to see is a pretty one-sided election, and the results of the election won't be the main point of interest. The results, of the, 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 the main point of interest will be what happens after re- the results are declared. Because remember that four years ago, the, the whole state looked as if it might be tottering in popular protest at what were clearly rigged elections. Christopher? Um, There are two important characters that have been eased out. What happens is this. There is a thing called the Guardian Council. Everybody says, I want to stand. But the Guardian Council, which is really run by the supreme leader, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, um, it says we have eight places. We're going to have eight people stand for election. We will choose those elections, uh, electioneers. So Akbar Hashemi Rasanjani, who was... Uh, the leader at one time, Ahmadinejad, uh, his boy, uh, Masha Hayi, he's been eased out as well. And so this is going to be not a fixed election, but it's going to be a fixed election. And that's what Mike is really sort of saying. After the election, we could see people taking to the streets. And don't forget, there's no reason why there shouldn't be an attempt, don't know how far it'll get, an attempt um, at sort of like a Cairo like a green uh, revolution in Iran. And I would be looking that within days of the election results, that will start happening. People will be on the streets. Now, remember what's happening in Iran? It's next door to Syria. Iran is supporting Syria. This is the whole... See this as a regional thing, not just something that happens in Tehran. Now, the Royal Navy's former flagship, the Ark Royal, sailed for a Turkish scrapyard on Monday. Her decommissioning in the 2010 Defence Review means has left Britain without a fully operational aircraft carrier for at least another seven years. This week, the decision to do a U-turn on the kind of aircraft for the new carriers was under scrutiny and is still a source of much debate. Uh, Michael Clark, that decision to decommission the Ark Royal and also the Harriers heavily criticised at the time, but it was supposed to be part of a new strategic view of Britain's place in the world. Is that right? Yes, it is. I mean, decommissioning the Ark is not a no big deal. I mean, there have been five Ark Royals, um, and the first was launched before the, the year before the Spanish Armada, 1587, and the next Ark Royal wasn't for another 300 years, just before the First World War. So the, uh, the Ark Royal is a great historic name, but there have been five of them. There will undoubtedly be a sixth, but we're not sure when, and it might be another 50 or 60 years, or it might be 20 years. We shouldn't be surprised at that. The, the, the issue is more um, that we don't have a strike carrier with aircraft on, um, we won't have now until 2020. So we'll have a carrier, uh, the first of the of the class, the Queen Elizabeth class in 2016. We'll have the second one available in probably 27, uh, 2017 for initial trials. And then the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, uh, the, called the Lightning, the Lightning II as it is, um, will arrive operationally in 2020. And what the, the Navy is saying is, well, it would be nice if we, if we didn't have to gap these, but the fact is we do. Um, we know that the force is somewhat out of balance, but it will come back into balance by 2020. Now, that's fine uh, until we, we think about the comprehensive spending review, which will be announced in the next couple of weeks, because that may move the goalposts in terms of financial assumptions for 2015 
And if I had, if I were a betting man, I would put some money on the idea that the F-35 will probably move to the right and may not be operationally available until after 2020. I'm guessing, but I think it's a reasonable guess. Christopher, um, in the past, the armed forces have had some wriggle room for, to cope with unforeseen events. Has the restructuring towards 2010 uh, had any impact on that? 2020, I should say. Yeah, it, it, it does to some extent. It does to some extent because... It's, it's been scrutinised far more now. So at one time, for example, you could say, right, when it, somebody could say at the uh, in, in Treasury, right, you don't need six frigates to defend an aircraft carrier. Um, and so the Navy would say, OK, well, we'll slow down the building rate so we can actually pay for them in th- sort of two or three years out. That sort of thing is all gone. The important thing about this is, and you know, Mike's right, quite right about the F-35, um, the Navy ain't going to get the F-35 operational, let's say, before 2022, 20, 23, 24, 25, before they can, and then only one carrier operating it. Uh, now, it- that is, is it extraordinary because it, you have to start rethinking under new budgets, under new government by then, under new defence ministries and new international situations, you have to think of one thing. Can the Royal Navy take part in force projection? And if it can't, therefore the United Kingdom starts to have a new defence policy. And there's one irony. The Americans are flying drones or test flying drones off, off the flight deck of one of their aircraft carriers, the, uh, the, the George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, now, those uh, drones have flown off via catapults. Royal Navy can't Decided do that with the them. new ones yes. because they're going back to jump jets. Uh, but you could always, you know, between, by the time they can bring on operational, somebody can say, oh, well, you know, let's go back to a catapult. Briefly, um, speaking of drones, let's mention uh, President Obama's speech at the National Defence University, Christopher. Yeah, that's today. Very important. Uh, he's going to do his drone, I think, his drone justification speech. If you th- <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't call it that. Well, he doesn't go, he will. Um, uh, in 2005, there was just one drone attack, for example, in Pakistan. It went to a peak in 2010, 130. This year, so far, 13. He's going to have to say, I can justify it. But I'll tell you one thing he's probably going to have to do. He's going to take it out, the targeting out of the hands of the CIA, give it to the military. That might calm, thing down on, calm things down on the hill, but not for long because he's got the other problem. What's he going to do about Guantanamo? Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and our defence analyst, you, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening.